0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Simple Medicines Podcast with Hoji Alimi. My name is Kevin, and on today's episode, Hoji will be having a broad-ranging healthcare discussion with Dr. Tyler Southwell. Hoji and Dr. Southwell will be discussing genetically designed medical solutions, body sync, improvements in healthcare, and the importance of patient wellness to enhance disease prevention. Dr. Southwell is a board-certified family medicine physician practicing medicine for over 10 years graduating first from Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan for his MD, and then his residency from the University of Michigan. His diverse clinical background includes both frontier and inner city practice with underserved communities, working with native tribes in Alaska and Arizona and being involved in over 40 clinical trials, researching a wide array of medical problems. He currently runs an independent, cutting edge private physician and wellness practice in the Phoenix area in Arizona. His unique practice model revolves around creating personalized, genetically designed medical solutions for patients. This form of practice, called precision medicine, is bound to be the future and standard of medical practice and will revolutionize the prevention and treatment of diseases. His patients learn how the upstream, meaningful genetics they carry affect their medical and lifestyle challenges and how to intervene on and or maximally prevent those issues. He also creates personalized vitamin and supplement solutions based on easy-to-understand metrics measured from serum, patient's lifestyles, goals, and of course their genetic needs. He has seen much better patient outcomes and general health as a result of this shift from the usual standard of care model, and encourages patients and their physicians to become more aware of the opportunity for health this style of practice can represent. Please keep in mind the intent of this program is to discuss the latest medical innovations in patient care. None of the comments in our podcasts are intended to be medical advice or to replace your physician's advice. It's important to discuss any ideas, procedures, drugs, or therapies with your physician first. Thank you.
1: Hello, my name is Hoji Alimi. I am your host during this podcast program, and I have invited Dr. Tyler Southwell to join me today. This is a very special program. We are going to speak about genetic guided medicine. This is a hot topic, something that is in the frontiers of medicine, and not too many physicians, scientists, even patients are aware of this technology. Tyler, thank you so much for taking the time joining me.
2: Thank you for having me on this broadcast. I appreciate the invitation.
1: Absolutely. So, Tyler, can you tell me a little bit about your background and especially for our listeners, how long you have been practicing medicine, in what field of medicine have you been practicing, and then we're going to get into how you actually arrived into doing genetic guided medicine.
2: Okay. Well, I'm a, a family medicine physician. I trained at the University of Michigan. I also trained a year before that in surgery. I mastered in urology before I decided I wanted to do more comprehensive three hundred and sixty degree human health. In internal medicine I like geriatrics, so family medicine was the best fit for me. And I've been practicing since I graduated medical school in two thousand and eight. And I practice in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I built a practice around precision wellness using genetics.
1: And what are some of the changes overall you have seen over the course of your professional career? that either positively or negatively has changed in terms of how healthcare system is progressing and how patients are being treated?
2: Well, I mean, when you come into medical, the medical field, most of us are idealists with a, a vision of what it could be in terms of what the, the profession could be. But pretty quickly, the reality sets in and it becomes more and more concrete as you are released from residency, but even in residency, The focus is more on patient turnover, volume of patients, how many can you handle, how many can you see. Treating illness becomes a priority in that setting because you don't have time to delve into wellness, and reality is that wellness reimburses very little. You have to, to bill insurance, to have like a complicated visit, you have to have problems. So it's very much focused on putting fires out, not preventing them. Prevention in medicine right now is about preventing cancer. It's like a checkbox visit and reimburses about half of what a visit for problems does. And it's supposed to be longer, which makes it not a priority for the physician necessarily. And patients don't think their doctor is somebody to really talk to about their wellness. And by that, I mean nutrition, exercise. Doctor, what am I at risk for? Can you tell me my individualized risk beyond just the basic standard of care things, like everyone's at risk for colon cancer it's in your family history, so we'll screen you a little early. But what about risk for coronary artery disease, the leading killer of men and women in this country, which has been for years? So it's a very much a economics-driven model. Family practitioner can't stay in practice unless he sees more than 18 patients a day generally. And that doesn't leave room for long conversations, for patient education. And You know, if you look at some studies of that, like more than 80% of doctors are burned out in this model. Doctors don't like this either, but it's just the structure of the beast that we live in. So I don't think medicine right now is what most doctors really want it to be. I think the problem is based off insurance companies, which are corporations who by definition are looking to make profits. It's based off of practices that are trying to stay afloat or large organizations like Kaiser Permanente or some of these bigger groups that are looking at the same thing, I mean, economics, you can't divorce that from the practice of medicine. You have to have things pay for themselves, at least. But standards of care, with that being such a priority, has led to the practice of medicine being less fulfilling and the patients aren't getting what they deserve. And they're not getting the best medical care. They're not getting new research applied to their care. The standard of care takes, studies have shown, somewhere between 8 to 12 years to change. Mostly, I think that's because doctors are too busy because of this model, and everyone understands that they've been to a doctor's office where they've waited an hour in a huge waiting room, gotten maybe 10 minutes of a doctor's time, didn't even have really an opportunity to create the relationship it takes to ask the deep questions, and then they're out the door with a prescription of pills in their pocket. That doesn't really represent how I practice medicine, but I think the problem comes down to economics and priority setting.
1: I had a very good colleague of mine. Actually, I've worked with a lot of physicians because of nature of my work, uh, you know, I work in pharmaceutical medical device industry. And many of the physicians who were practicing, they were uh, independent from larger systems like Kaiser. Uh, there's There has been a migration where they have been shutting down their practices and going through consolidation because they couldn't economically, they couldn't stand on their own feet and see patients and treat patients and so on. Do you see the same trend? I think there's tremendous amount of economic pressure. I just want to get this answered by you.
2: Yeah, that's a great great observation.
1: Yeah, one of the things that they were mentioning was seeing patients is one thing, but managing the economics and cash flow, they may not get reimbursed from Medicare, Medicaid, sometimes for months. And that that makes it extremely difficult for them to hold on to their practice. Is this what you have seen or you're seeing in the, in the in the market?
2: Absolutely. First of all, they don't really teach us practice management in our training, especially at the best programs, because the best programs are in centers that are university based, and they're I think honestly, if it maybe just subconsciously, they're hoping that you come out and work for them. They want you to work for a big organization. And you go out and you're pretty much all on your own trying to make this work. Having good staff to help you be successful independently is very difficult. But there are practices that have been successful for 20 years that are folding into these larger organizations because there's enormous aggressive tactics coming from these big health groups to try to consolidate the primary care, especially offices, because that is the, if they control the referral base, then they control the whole system. And Studies have shown that primary care doctors multiply wealth, like 3 to $5 million a year come from every primary care doctor based on the wealth generated by writing prescriptions, writing imaging studies, and making referrals to other physicians who then do big procedures. So what these big groups are doing is trying to own the referral network by owning primary care offices. So they're coming and making these big offers to these older practices who have seen decreasing margins over the years because reimbursements have been going down. If you look at versus inflation, we're making much less, having to see more patients, way more regulation, more headaches. Medicare is a great example. I mean, in the old days, people wouldn't even take Medicare because it reimbursed so poorly. Now Medicare sets the standard of what reimbursement is for a commercial plans. So if you're not a proceduralist who can demand tens of thousands of dollars for a procedure for your time, it's very difficult. And that includes not just primary care doctors, but general surgeons who are like primary care surgeons. You know, they're the primary care of surgery. Those guys have been squeezed. And I don't know of any independent general surgeons in my community right now. But it is community dependent. I will say when there's a healthy market, like in Phoenix, there are three major health systems competing with each other. There are more independent physicians in this town, I believe, than in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I'm from, which has one giant health system that's kind of sitting on the town, owning all the imaging, owning the labs, owning the insurance company, literally. So you get squeezed out. You gotta join or pick another profession. There hardly are any independent people where I come from. That's just a trend across the country. And I think what that does, it takes away, it's another step of taking away a doctor's autonomy. When you sell your practice, this is the well-known thing. You sell your practice to like a bigger, a bigger organization. They tell you it's gonna be great. Everybody knows it's a lie. I don't know why these guys sell and do this, but then they go in and then somebody else is in control of the doctor's schedule, for example. A patient they know well calls and they want to fit him in. The front desk says no, and the doctor has to deal with it. I mean, that's ridiculous. You wouldn't think that would happen, but that does. And th- th- these guys will quit medicine. We're losing doctors that way. Early retirement, they're sick of it. They can't handle this anymore.
1: So yeah, this is the big trend. And this has been my experience. Again, in the world world of pharmaceuticals, um, we work with a lot of physicians, not only in the U.S., but in Europe and elsewhere, and especially dealing with physicians about clinical trials and so on. So there are times we get a chance, we sit down, have a cup of coffee, and we are not talking about clinical trials. We are talking about their personal lives and our personal lives. And there has been a significant number of physicians who are leaving seeing patients and they're starting to go work for pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's leaving a huge void in the in communities where now patients are facing much more limited time with their physician. Everything is timed and the quality is not there. Am I am I seeing this correctly? Absolutely. I mean there's no there's no shortage of opportunities for physicians. You know, they are very
2: resourceful people in industry. There are positions to be filled and they're offering you half a million a year. And right now you're working 65 hours a week to make less than 250000 and you've got 200 to $300,000 in student loan debt and a house and three or four young kids. I mean, think about the economics of that decision. It It almost becomes it's best for my family for me to stop practicing medicine because I mentioned burnout earlier. The emotional health of physicians and the tax that this current system puts on doctors is completely unreasonable. And we are completely unable as physicians to protect ourselves from it. We're federally not allowed to unionize. So we have no collective bargaining power. So what are we supposed to do? I don't like to admit to being a victim of a system, which is why I've changed the way I practice and I've, I've pursued a different model. I'm hoping more doctors follow me. But they're victims of this thing that's much larger than they are. It includes politics, business, but doctors don't go into medicine to worry about that stuff. So they want to just practice their trade, treat patients and have good outcomes, and have time to learn new things and this system is not a reality it's not realistic
1: and as you said, a lot of physicians who are graduating and going into the market and're starting practicing medicine, unfortunately they, they, they don't learn business in school so suddenly they are coming into a very complicated landscape of how insurance companies and uh hmos and the government medicare and medicaid and all that it, it's it's a very um can be a very disruptive thing to practicing medicine so and the 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 reason I like to talk about this, and I'm glad we are bringing this up uh, before we move on to the real topic of our discussion, is how you practice medicine, is that from a patient's perspective, um, and, and I know a lot of patients that they are pre-diabetic or they are diabetic, and personally, I, I was diagnosed with diabetes uh, almost 15 years ago, and even for some of us who have some level of education about how this industry moves and how things are done it's very difficult to navigate and use the system to your own benefit to manage your diabetes better and what I have seen is I get very limited time with my primary physician and then they are they are thinking how do we control your diabetes your cardiovascular issues with medication and they are prescribing medicine to control and prevent future prognosis that, you know, may not be the 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 outcome you're looking for. So I would love to ask you how you're practicing medicine now. How is it that how did you arrive at this? And then how are you practicing medicine that is drastically different than what is done right now in the market?
2: So eight years ago I started a concierge practice. Um concierge medicine, I don't love the term Most of us that do that are trying to go to this the the term private physician, but people don't really know what that means. Concierge medicine is a cash-only service model that patients pay an annual fee or a monthly fee, and it allows the physician to take more time with the patient, have a lower patient panel, uh, a lower volume of patients, but a much higher quality of care. So I wanted to do it because I always thought I wanted to be a village doctor that followed my scientific and you know moral intuition when practicing medicine without the fetters of the system we just discussed. The way that works is I see patients for no less than 30 minutes. They can access me telemedically any time of day. They don't have to stop work to come in and lose half a day of their lives to see a doctor just for simple lab results. They, I call them for 10 minutes on the phone. I can get so much more done so much faster for my patients that way. It creates space and time for me to do medical research, problem-based medical research. I have a patient who has an issue. What's the latest research say about this issue? I can stay very much up to date because of this model. It's improved my quality of life greatly. I think in this current market where most people have high deductible plans and they end up paying cash and their premiums anyway, People see more and more of a value in this, and this allowed me to create a practice that's focused on holistic care that has that makes time for wellness. Wellness is easily as complicated, if not more complicated, than disease management. If someone has a disease, we love to research the solutions for diseases in this country. Great research, great medications, great recommendations, but when it comes to wellness, which includes how do I exercise, how important is it for me, what supplements might I need genetically? How should I be eating? Getting help from a physician who's well-educated in in those things, that just doesn't happen. And thats we all know that that's the foundation of human health. And who is supposed to, who has the role in our society to guide humans in health? It should be the physician. Without going into this new model, I didn't really ever have the time to be good at that. And I tried. Motivational interviewing is something that's been well-researched. How do you get someone to change their health habits? It takes more than a 15-minute consultation to get that going for a human. So I've created more time with my patients that way. Um, the economics work better in my favor that way. But I've had to develop this business without much support in terms of, you know, it's been eight years of just evolution based on trial and error. Like, what do I charge a patient? How do I know I'm making enough money? How do I quantify the cost of what I'm doing? Those questions, I mean, I didn't go to business school. I didn't get the education I think doctors deserve in business management to make this happen. So I had to keep seeing insurance patients until recently just to augment my life to make this work. But I really think it's working. And I feel like this has always been a worthy thing to try to get done because I don't want to practice medicine ineffectively. It also has allowed me to develop uh, you know, we're talking today about genetics. Precision medicine means designing a treatment uh, and recommendations individually based on precision metrics and information. Everyone has a different genetic code. There are genes out there that matter. There are genes out there that might matter, but we don't have enough research on them. But there are a plethora of genes that are common, like one in three people have them, that have research that's 10plus years old and robust. With research on solutions. These are actionable genes. Why are we not practicing medicine revolving around knowing these genes for every single patient? And the answer to that question is it takes too much time in the regular business model of medicine. You don't have time to analyze genetics necessarily and give hour-long consultations to, to people about what the implications of the genes are It's much easier just to reflect back to a standard of care model where you have these more superficial things like what's your blood pressure and what's your cholesterol level. Therefore, this is your your prevention strategy than to know the deep genetic contributors. So that's the most important way that how I practice medicine is different beyond the business is to base things off of research-based genetic testing. And also, I do more micronutrient testing and nutrition is very important to me
1: so Tyler before we go that far let's keep in mind that a lot of our listeners may not be as familiar with genetics and the role of genes so let's talk about genetics and maybe a couple examples that maybe 10 people with different kinds of genes uh, genetic makeup or responding differently to different things maybe you want to take it from there and then we get to your to your more sophisticated testing practices
2: so an example let's use a patient example obviously i'm not going to say any patient's names i had a patient a couple years ago who is a 50 year old female no family history of cardiovascular disease thin exercises she's got pain complaints that are That are interesting, but other than that, would have not expected her to be a cardiovascular risk patient. We run the test. Okay, my genetics panel with NutriSync. She's got genes for hypertension that I didn't really expect. She's got genes, more importantly than that, for inflammation management that are not favorable. And she's got a detoxification system that can't take away things from the blood system that hurt blood vessels. That's not good. These are not; these are common, but the combination is what matters. And then on top of all that, her cholesterol looks great because she's got a gene that doesn't allow her to properly utilize her good cholesterol. So the good cholesterol is actually artificially high. So this is actually someone who you'd be like, this is a low-risk patient. But genetically, if you pool all these genes that contribute to risk, she's actually high-risk, unexpected information. I didn't expect to see that. I got cardiac testing on her and she has 99th percentile worth of plaque for her age, all of it at the very most important artery that feeds the heart. Within a year of that test, her brother, who's younger than her, had a heart attack. Non-smoker, no family history. Now, I would have not found this patient if it wasn't for this test, and this is not an uncommon story for me. Um, And this is just one example of how genetics can really matter. This woman had a healthy lifestyle, but she wasn't living a genetically designed lifestyle. She wasn't getting supplements to help negate some of the things she's inherited. And neither of her parents had these outcomes because they only had one copy of each of these things. And she inherited one from each of her parents. So now in her bloodline, she's the first person to present with this risk. Without genetic testing, we don't know these things. And that's why you hear of, everybody knows somebody in your community Who's 50 and looks fit and drops over in a parking lot. I mean, these things happen. We all shake our heads. Doctors write down cause of death unknown or they go to autopsy and we find out, but there's genes out there that are well researched that could have helped to prevent that and did for this patient I'm mentioning. And she was one of the first people that I did through the, maybe it was three years ago. I mean, she, she's one of the, she's one of the patients that I use for an example of this that is just so potent to me.
1: Tyler, what's your action plan with this very specific patient? So when, when you get the genetic test and, and the report, then you customize what for this patient?
2: So this patient needs to address her inflammation genes. They can be Their expression of these genes can be suppressed through cardio, regular cardiovascular exercise. Fish oil can help mitigate inflammation. She needs a daily aspirin. Even though her cholesterol looks great, she needs to be treated As if she can make coronary plaque, which obviously we found in her with statins, which people don't love statins, but, and I don't either, but when that they're indicated, they're indicated. So she's on a combination of medications and supplements to help mitigate that risk. She also had antioxidant problems. So we all have natural antioxidant function. Her genetically, hers genetically is weak. So she's on high doses of antioxidants and I measure those in her blood vitamins A, E, K, C, for example, I make sure those are at the 75th percentile or greater for her age using supplements because we tried diet and didn't quite get her there and we're trying to be aggressive. I also added green tea extract and a synthetic antioxidant that's 10,000 times more potent than anything in nature. So she has no, I have no worries that I've mitigated that risk. And she's taken on the lifestyle and she would have probably not been motivated to do that without this significant information that she got only through genetics. She takes a personalized multivitamin and she feels better every day because of it. But really, the information was always there. We just never looked until we did. And now her life is very much different. Her trajectory for life expectancy and quality of life, in my opinion, are completely different because we did the genetic test.
1: So. A patient like me who's spending thousands of dollars, right, because I'm, I'm diabetic and I belong to a certain insurance company, which we don't want to name any insurance companies uh, here or blame anybody. We are just talking about how the system works. But I'm just showing a contrast. So me, for example, I'm going to my doctor. I spend thousands of dollars. And because they don't run this test, because it is not reimbursable, and it's not money in the pocket of the insurance company, then my physician or the group of physicians that I'm seeing, they're going to miss that information about me, correct? And my prognosis then probably is not going to be as good as I, I wished it would be, correct? So let's talk about this test because when we are talking about genetic and genetic guided precision medicine, there's a lot of Also information out there about 23andMe and there are a whole bunch of other genetic tests out there. How does this specific test, what's the name of the test?
2: The company's called BodySync and the test is called NutriSync. And the test, what sets this test apart, the reason I chose it is because they have a really high bar for what genes they include. They only include genes that have good research, but also good research on their actionability. You don't want to know, as a physician, why do you get a test that you can't do anything with? I'm not a fan of that. Genetic information can be emotionally traumatizing to humans, but also as a doctor, like, why do I just, I don't need to know bad news. There's nothing you can do anything about. So they have a very high bar for that. They also don't test your entire genome and then secondarily sell that information to large clearinghouses. Which I think is something most people don't know is happening to their genes when they use some of these larger companies. That's a huge market, by the way, for research. But why are you letting anyone else know your most precious information? Because I believe a future of genetic discrimination is coming. Then also they want to only work through physicians because they know the power of this information needs to be contextualized by a doctor who takes into account the clinical picture of the patient, their family history, with genetics. Genetics is just one piece. Can't just submit your genes to some company and get a piece of paper back without having it go through the context of a physician's mind, I think. I think that's just cookie cutter, doesn't really take a person to the next level of understanding. And when patients used to bring me 23andMe reports, for example, like before I started to really personally delve into this, I don't know what to do with this information because I knew half these genes were either just meaningless or, like I said before, just bad news. There's nothing to do about. I didn't trust their interpretation. And often there's conflict. You know, these genes will show something and there's nothing in the family history, the patient's health and lifestyle, have nothing to do with that gene. So I would just throw my hands up in the air and I didn't find that te- the 23andMe to be meaningful to my clinical practice.
1: And if I may add, Tyler, I I think um, if I'm not mistaken, there are regulations where uh, at least in the pharma and medical device under FDA regulations, that if you want to cover certain specific uh, indications or data analysis, that has to be primarily done through a physician. It can be done through 23andMe because FDA does not like for patients to self-diagnose and self-treat. That is something that I'm fully aware of. I know FDA is very hot on this issue. So with BodySync's test, when the test is done, then a copy goes to an MD like you and then walk me through the process. What happens then?
2: So the the other thing I forgot to mention is accuracy in testing. NutriSync has a very high accuracy level. And some of these other companies that have turnaround of like a week, you send it in and like a week later, you get results. That's like quick and dirty genetics and studies have shown there's a 15% error rate. So Can you imagine getting bad news and it's wrong? That's a risk nobody should be taking. And that includes some of these companies that do genetic testing for cancer risk. There can be error rates there too. So it's a very frightening world where you can get errors. It's important to consider that. Then, okay, so I swab a patient. It takes six weeks to come back. The patient gets a copy about two days after me. They get to read their action plan. So they get to see... Nutrisync's interpretation of their genetics, which is excellent. They tell them about exercise performance, vitamin utilization, detoxification. They tell them what they can about themselves without taking that medical and interpretive step because Nutrisync recognizes and respects that they are not a physician. So the patient gets interesting and good information about how to live well, but there's another layer underneath that. And so what I do is I take the genetics and contextualize the genetics their family history also comes into play. And then across those 22 health categories, we come up with personalized recommendations that also reflect the patient's reality. So some people can't live this pure, perfect, genetically guided life. I wanna know. As a physician, I very much create an honest relationship with my patients. They tell me what is really gonna happen and what isn't. And then based on that information, I come up with a strategy to risk mitigate. So I try to come up with top three priorities. What can we do number one, number two, and number three? And then on top of that, there's easy stuff like personalized multivitamins based off of that conversation and those genetics and serology, serum testing. You live a certain way. You know, most of my vegan patients don't need a personalized multivitamin unless they have very specific genetic needs because they have great vitamin intake, but most people aren't vegan. So where are you with your basic vitamin levels, your basic antioxidant function? And I take that into account as well because patients who take multivitamins have terrible serum testing. They do not absorb these vitamins. Less than 2% of what they take, they're absorbing.
1: So when you walk into CVS, you walk into any grocery store, there are aisles of millions, if not billions, billions of dollars of multivitamin packs and pills and gummy bears and so on and when i was told that i need to go ahead and get multi-vitamin because i was diabetic and i need to be proactive and i walked down that aisle and obviously you reach for any package that is eye level that's just human psychology you don't reach down on the bottom shelf and then you look for the one that is marketed better to you in terms of color and pictures and so on but then when you pick it up and you turn it around and i took maybe four or five bottles, and they, first of all, the amount of vitamins or the type of vitamins are not consistent from package to package. So how does a patient that comes and sees you make sure that he or she is not being ripped off? Where do they go to get the right amount of vitamin D or vitamin B and so on? What's the action plan for them?
2: Yeah, I'm the same way. I go down the vitamin aisle wherever it is. And I'm lost. Uh, it's overwhelming. You don't know what company to trust. When I started to get into this, I got to also say as a, a background here, in medical school, we, we learn about the important role of these vitamins and biochemical process, right? But when it comes to clinical intervention and residency programs, they don't teach how to deal with this. There's, there's really not education in this. So I had to become educated in this as I became more convinced of the need for supplements. And it took me a long time, but I found a company in Canada with a clinical pharmacist who's the owner, who has exactly the same story you just told. He worked for a pharmacy. They had supplements. He noticed they're not the right dose form, They're not the right amount for the clinical indication. So this is a pharmacist who, who's a farm doctor four years and two more years spends working with patients and has some authority in how to tell patients what to do. So this company uses the most bioactive forms and the best easy absorbable forms and will give you feedback if you try to put together a multivitamin for a patient where there's conflict, where they should be separated, for example, because you're, they're going to make each other not absorb or the ratios aren't correct. So what I do in my practice is I take their genetic need, I take their blood and see what they've got. And their blood that I take is a three-month average, so it's a pretty good reflection of how they're living, and what they're getting, and their diet. And then I come up with a formula and I, I treat vitamins like I would any pharmaceutical agent. All vitamins have research on how you absorb milligram per kilogram if your body weight matters. So everyone gets a formulation that's pharmaceutical level and formulation at least. And then I send the prescription to my buddy in Canada. Canada has much better regulations on the production, sales, and distribution of vitamins than we do in the United States. So where you can go to the vitamin aisle and send it for analysis, and some of it's got literally sawdust in it. In Canada, that doesn't happen. There's a much higher bar. And also, this guy in Canada, because I'm very cost-conscious, this is wholesale pricing. So you could go to Amazon, you're not going to find a better deal for the quality. So patients get personalized vitamins. They take somewhere between three, and if they're really deficient, it could be six or seven capsules a day. And then in three months to six months, we retest. And see, how do we do? Because everybody absorbs a little differently. And then when we reformulate from there, we test another time. And then at that point, usually most people are in the green zone for everything that matters. And they stay on that formulation for life unless there's nutritional or health status changes. So I believe in personalization to the nth degree, but I also believe in treating vitamins as important as you would treat a pharmaceutical agent. It should be a medical intervention, not just walking down the aisle at the store. Now, some people can't afford personalized formulations, although I think they're more affordable long-term than, than they would think. So in that case, I do have some brands and things I like, and I'll guide patients how to get those things through Amazon or a local supplier. For example, you have diabetes. Chromium uh, is something that you want the right dose form and dose of, but I, would, I have every diabetic patient taking that. Unless their testing shows that they, for some reason, have really high levels in their serum, which... I almost never see. So there's more than one way to skin the cat, but it is really hard. You can't just tell a patient, "Hey, go out and get these doses or close to this, wherever you feel like it." You know, that just you're just putting them back out into the woods with the wolves to be taken advantage of. Again, like you said,
1: my my experience is if there is no regulation, that landscape allows. Best way to say it is you don't get the optimal results coming. Out of that specific market niche, and vitamins and supplements—that's that's a really good example of it. I mean, I, I I feel I'm not a physician, you are, but from my humble experience of being in pharma industry for over 25 years, I think we as patients waste so much money buying things that, as you said, we, we might even buy supplements and vitamins that our body is not even absorbing because we may be taking something else that is preventing the absorption of a specific vitamin.
2: Well, there's another aspect to this too. I mean, let me interject also that I have peers in naturopathy that are great. I have many friends who are in that field of study and they learn a lot about supplements. But it's also bringing it back to economics and motivating factors. I mean, these practices, I've had patients who are spending $1,200 a month at a practice like that on supplements that when I meet them, I'm like, that's just a ridiculous amount of your resources. So there's more than one place to be taken advantage of in this market. And I, I don't mean to denigrate my friends in naturopathy because not every one of them practices in that way, but I feel like I have an oath to do no harm. And one of the things I reflect on is the economic harm of our strategies that we're making for our patients. They need, they need cost-effective interventions, and vitamins can be expensive, and they can be completely ineffective despite what you're paying. Cost does not indicate quality necessarily. So people are just bamboozled left and right.
1: So if there is a patient who who is diabetic and a patient who is suffering from a form of cancer, and then there's a healthier individual who's maybe just obese and wants to lose weight, when they come to you, once you do the test and diagnosis and so on, do you also work very closely with their physicians who are treating their illnesses and diseases? Or is this just completely independent?
2: Well, I will tell you that I've tried a collaborative model, and I will send my reports with a preface letter for the primary care physician of record. And I have found almost no traction with them being interested to dig into this with me. I mean, I have had some traction, but ultimately it's been very difficult to get physicians who are in regular practices to take the time it takes to learn how to deal with this information. Physicians are trained to be skeptical. So. For example, for me, when I found NutriSync, I thought it looked too good to be true. So I spent six months researching every single gene in their test and more genes that are related to those genes. But I had the time to do that, but I spent an enormous amount of resource of my time becoming an expert at every single gene because ultimately a physician is responsible for every little test that you ever get. And I think that's a big barrier for physicians in the community to uh, take this test and run with it as far as you can take it. So. In answer to your question, I invite patients who have primary care physicians that they like into what we call a wellness program, where I'm not trying to treat their diabetes or heart disease. I'm not ordering colonoscopies. I might be ordering some tests and and doing some things, but it's really focused on maximum prevention and wellness. And I basically become a specialist in their lives. And eventually, within usually six to nine months, I'm only seeing them once a year, just to update and make sure that everything is still going well. My goal isn't to see them as often as they need to be seen by their primary care physician or their specialists or anything. My goal is to get them to the wellness. And once they're, they plateau at, at where we think they need to be, they don't need me much. And what I'm doing, whether or not the primary care physician knows it is complementing what that doctor is trying to achieve. And if something happens, like my diabetic patients frequently need less medications, I will reach out to that doctor and say, Hey, listen, did you notice that this patient's sugars are actually now a little low. I'm going to tell them to cut this medication you gave them in half, FYI. And I've never had any negative feedback. They're thrilled that the patient's doing better. But there is some territorial stuff that happens in medicine. So I have to be careful.
1: How about obesity? What's your success rate? I, I know your wellness program is not designed for patients to lose weight or just focused on weight loss. But when somebody comes to you and says, I'm overweight, and I need to lose 20 pounds, 50 pounds, What has been your success rate with these type of patients to lose weight? And I'll tell you the reason why I'm asking, because there are a lot of listeners out there probably have gone through a similar experience as I have, is the current weight loss programs out there are not designed for diabetic patients to lose weight. And I want to say this very clearly, because according to CDC, Appropriate weight loss is a type of weight loss that you lose for five years and you maintain that for that period of time, minimum. But it's not the kind of weight loss you lose. You go to Weight Watchers, and I, I know a lot of patients, diabetic patients, they actually go to Jenny Craig's and so on. They experience this yo yo diet, which is a horrible thing psychologically. They lose the weight, they gain it, they have to go back. It's a, it's a revenue recurring model for these systems. So, in contrast to that, how does your system? promotes weight loss and how successful is it
2: well i would say that more than 60 percent of my patients regardless of if they're overweight or obese lose somewhere between five and ten pounds in the first six months just taking a personalized multivitamin alone because more than 75 percent of my patients biochemistry is not ideal and getting your biochemistry to be ideal helps your metabolic rate when it comes to intervention for the obese patients who have big goals like 30 to 50 pounds of weight loss. That is a very complicated question, but I would say more than 50% are successful. But there's a lot of psychology that goes into this. We have nutritionists that I work with that help with this. We have fitness people to help with this because if I come to a patient who's obese and I say, listen, you have a mitochondrial stimulation gene issue, you're designed to survive famine, and you have diabetes, which means your insulin levels are naturally very high which is pro-growth, pro-getting-fat hormone, right? So it's you've got these barriers. The most important thing with weight loss, in my opinion, is to set expectations. I can tell patients based on their genetics how fast and how easy I expect it to be or how hard. And then we take one step at a time. Okay, so for you, based genetically, you need exercise. You have a sedentary lifestyle. We're going to start with one day a week for the next month. And for that whole month, you're going to start to conceptualize in your head and talk to your wife or your husband. How can I get to two days a week? And how many minutes does it need to be? And here's the ultimate goal. If if you have the worst case scenario genetics, you need 60 minutes, six days a week. Most people think that that's crazy. It's a huge psychological barrier. But some people genetically, unless they get to that place, nothing else is going to come for them. It's not going to hit. They're not going to get the weight loss they want, and it's not going to be permanent. So overall, for the obese patient, that's complicated. Their success rate is probably around 50%, you know, because it just takes so much effort. But I will say that that's much better than it was before I had the genetic test. Before I had the genetic test, I'm more at like 30% success. And we're not talking patient getting to goal. We're talking patient having some success. Hormones are also very important, not just insulin, but I would say for females and males, their hormones are unbalanced, which is always the case if they're obese. That's another barrier that needs to be overcome. It's independent of this test and this discussion, but it relates to their biochemistry and their and their barriers. There's things that you need to be taken care of, low-hanging fruit things. You need a personalized multivitamin. You need this gene test, obviously. And you need hormone management. You need a holistic approach to your health. If you're not sleeping because you have undiagnosed sleep apnea, which many obese people do, they will never be successful losing weight until that's addressed. So weight loss is a very complicated question. It's very difficult. And the more obese people are, more difficult it is. But we've had some amazing success stories. But to say to you today that it's 90 plus percent successful would be totally untrue.
1: I still have a few more questions for you, Tyler. So one is also very bluntly, a lot of patients who are obese or they have diabetes, right? It has taken years of stress and depression and other factors that has brought them to that point right so you can't just ask them overnight let's let's just turn you upside down and make you an ideal human being you're going to be lean and you're going to be working out you're going to eat well and so on that's not going to happen and one of the major barriers that i have seen uh, again in my field because we deal with a lot of diabetic ulcers and so on in clinics uh, we, we see them in clinical trials is a lot of these patients are going through depression and if you cannot get rid of the depression is is like the side break is on on a truck and no matter how much you're trying to fuel that truck is not going to go does your program in any way help with levels of depression as well or is this something that they have to see a secondary source of kind of therapy
2: so depression is a very interesting thing so we think that depression there's genetic predisposing factors to depression we know that just by looking at population studies on who gets depressed why is that what are the genetics behind that the genes and nutrients that that are tested that are related to this include multiple markers for inflammation, multiple genetic sites that predict how much and how long, for example, you'll produce inflammation, sugar management genetics, which relate to the diabetic patients you're talking about, and then your ability to utilize B vitamins like folic acid, and as well as B12. Your body has to take those things and change them in order to fully utilize them and to not have those genes working well that do those things you to your depression with or without obesity. Now, obesity is a condition that increases systemic inflammation. It's like a direct linear correlation. Cerebral inflammation causes depression. Depressed people have inflammation. Obese people have inflammation. Of course, obese people are going to be at risk. It's not just because they feel bad because they're overweight. They literally have biochemical depression. This test can identify the sources of inflammation genetically, which you can intervene on, which I believe help my depressed patients as well as their need for bioactive forms of vitamins and how much. And then you combine that with the serum testing that tells you where they're at. That helps depression. In my opinion, you shouldn't skip to medications directed at depression until those first upstream contributors are dealt with. My depressed people get better after this test. Absolutely. And you're right. An obese patient with uncontrolled depression, I don't try to make them feel bad because they can't meet the bar I'm setting. That's, the first step is the depression, and then we work on weight loss strategies. That has to be dealt with first, you're right, because it completely undermines everything.
1: Yeah, I, I can tell you, I, as a patient, I have spent, as a type 2 diabetic patient, I have spent thousands of dollars outside of what insurance actually covers without any significant optimized result. whether it was weight loss or it was other programs. Back then, I wasn't aware of this genetic guided medicine. To really understand your genetics and how your body actually metabolizes food, how it absorbs vitamins, once that's established, then everything else is going to work much better. And, you know, back then when I was diagnosed, I wasn't ever of this test. So this is this is phenomenal. So let me ask you, if somebody is in New York or somebody who's in California, how can they find you? How can they benefit from these services? Do you provide services to patients who are outside of your city and your state?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's important to say that if someone needs hormone prescriptions and things like that, if I don't have a license in that state, I'm not supposed to intervene on them in that way. But,
1: but you can refer them to their primary physician to, for that, right?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. But I believe that there is zero risk and 100% gain in getting the test done which we can ship to them easily, and they can go to NutriSync's website. There's a new patient tab, and they can get connected to us through that, and they can get the kit, and then they get a consultation that we put it through our algorithm. We go through the NutriSync's report, and we decide based on the conversation with the patient for information on how they're living, how they're feeling, their family history, and combining that with the genes. We can test their serology for basic things like micronutrient levels and do a multivitamin intervention, and then. If there's more, like they have high cardiac risk and I'm worried, I'm writing a letter to their physician. I'm sending a copy to the patient and the physician. And I, am having the patient go to their doctor and ask, have this addressed. You know, and if they won't address it, now the patient at least is empowered to know. And they will, if they're savvy, they're going to find a solution in their community. I do have patients from all over the country. I have licenses in Georgia, Colorado, Utah. New Mexico, Arizona, obviously Michigan.
1: Tyler, how do they contact you? Do they, do you work through NutriSync system? So they go to NutriSync on the internet.
2: We have a program where we're trying to collect data and do some research to prove the efficacy of what we're talking about today. And the partnership with BodySync, they should go to BodySync.com. That's B-O-D-Y-S-Y-N-C.com and click on the NutriSync new patient link. To learn more about this study and join it we have a promotional rate for the testing that will include conversation with me and we're trying to enroll patients so we can prove this I think that's vital to do because we can start to really get behind these statements get this information out because my belief is this genetic testing can change the landscape of health in this country I think children should be getting it I think any adult can benefit even if they feel maximal they should know what might be lurking underneath for risk that they may not realize. Um, And for those people who are struggling, this is vital information I think they need. And that's my strong opinion. So we're trying to recruit patients to help us prove that.
1: So the the website is bodysync.com and then they can just click on a new patient button and then they will receive the kit. They can do the swap, send it back, and then you will be notified and you will be contacting the patient.
2: That's exactly right. And the, the price of the test includes the consultation, and then we can make a strategy with the patient on next steps. And most people, I want to get some serum testing after that, and we do a consultation to follow that, and we come up with a plan.
1: Tyler, thank you so much for your time. If you would change something about our healthcare system in the United States, if there was one thing, what would that be in, in your opinion?
2: I think that probably the most important thing we could do is create a system that rewards physicians better for doing wellness using precision medicine. And by that, I mean, we have systems right now that are in place that are threatening physicians if their patients don't have good diabetes control with less reimbursement. And these doctors could be in some of the most underserved, under-resourced communities in the country. And another doctor could be in Scottsdale, like me, with patients that have money, and they're being punished for that? That's not a system that is getting us anywhere, but what we could have is a system that actually is more positively reinforcing, and we should not be paying half a visit price for a wellness visit. Patients shouldn't just be getting one wellness visit a year. They should have at least four, and physicians should be paid well enough and be incentivized well enough to make them want to adapt precision wellness into their practice. And if not that, then at least make wellness a diagnosis that warrants their attention so that patients start to become more excited about seeing their doctor about their health, not necessarily about just their illness, but their health. I think that would be transformative for the landscape. If I had one other thing I could do, every baby born would get this NutriSync test. To be frank, that's just information that's such low-hanging fruit. Why aren't we giving this to parents? Why aren't insurance companies covering this test? Why aren't they more interested in this? Because I believe this would change the landscape of disease in this country. And I think probably the reason that it's not offered is because it would turn everything on its head. We would have so much less diabetes, heart disease, cancer, maybe.
1: In my humble view, I don't think the system is set up for patients to get the best outcome. And that's where the unfortunate part is. And in this pro- during this process, physicians are being punished economically and otherwise. Well, Tyler, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate your time. Uh, I'm humbled by the fact that you actually accepted to come on the program and uh, speak to me. And I'm sure we're going to have another episode on this. Uh, I'm going to get tons of questions from some of our listeners and forward them to you. Well, once again, thank you and really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you.
2: It was my honor to be here and I appreciate your interest oh, happy day.
0: Oh, happy day. you made my way For more information, please visit simplemedicines.com, where we are building a community of healthcare professionals and patients to continue our discussions about trends and problems that we are experiencing in the medical world today. Thank you.